I love that movie. The big historical buff that I am. Um, well, good morning. How are you guys doing? So, question for you as we open this morning, having just watched that, how powerful is the President of the United States? Many people say that the President of the United States is the most powerful person in the world because he or she is the leader of the most powerful nation in the world. But how powerful is the President really? In the movie Lincoln, you can see Abraham Lincoln loudly proclaim, slamming his hand on the desk, that under the powers given him to the Constitution, this should be done. And yet, he still needs his people to haggle and scrounge for two more votes in order to pass the 13th Amendment back in 1865, the amendment that would outlaw slavery in America forever. Yes, the president is powerful. But that power is limited. Is there any person on earth more powerful than the President of the United States? Well, probably not in breadth from a global perspective, but within a confined setting, there's some incredibly powerful people. Some say that there's no one more powerful in the world, in the, in the world than a, a captain over the ship that they captain. Others say there's no one more powerful in the world than a commander over the army that they lead into battle. In past centuries, people would have probably said there's no one more powerful than a king or queen over their country, but specifically the castle in which they live and rule. All of these are great examples of human power, but still, human power is limited. Their power is limited through a number of reasons. It's limited in scope, as we talked about. Some, like our president here in America, is limited by other political forces, the Congress, the judiciary, designed to keep the various powers in check so that no one branch exceeds, gets too much power. And then there are the natural human limitations to power, right? I mean, whatever human is in power of whatever organization or country or whatever, that person has to sleep. And when they fall asleep, they're handing their power to somebody else to guard them, to watch over them, to man the controls while they're away. Also, a person of power might be limited by age, by health, by forces outside of themselves that can diminish or take away their power in spite of their best efforts. All of the examples that I have given exercise significant power in this world and over the lives of real people. But none of these people has absolute power, or what we want to call sovereignty, which in its purest form is defined as supreme power and authority. There are some examples of earthly sovereignty, the closest thing we might see within a country context. Kim Jong-un of North Korea, we all know the horrors that happened there. Vladimir Putin in Russia, who has put up these fake elections for for decades now to stay in power as long as he would want to. But even these leaders are not there solely by their own authority. They're having to keep a certain number or group of people happy, whether it be business leaders, whether it be the generals of the army. As long as these people get what they want and are fed and are wealthy and receive whatever benefits they want, they can stay in power. It's still limited. True sovereignty is something that only God can possess. And that is what we are going to talk about this morning as we begin our new series in the book of Isaiah called The Lord Is. 
during this new series, which is our second as we move through the book of Isaiah for the next number of months, we're going to be focusing in on the character of God as he is described by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah paints a large and beautiful picture of God in his book, and several themes emerge. God is compassionate. He's gracious. He's zealous. He's righteous. And as we're going to talk about today, he's sovereign. So our question for the morning is, what is the sovereignty of God and why is it important? Well, let's give a little background on where we are in the book of Isaiah as we venture in to our chapter this morning. We're going to be talking about Isaiah chapter 40. But Isaiah chapter 40 doesn't happen in a vacuum. Isaiah 40 is written right after Isaiah 39. And if you don't remember, we've talked about it here and there. Isaiah 39 is a terrible decision by King Hezekiah, who was generally a good king. But he makes a grievous mistake, and God judges Hezekiah. He judges the nation of Judah because of what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah has some guests from the far-off nation of Babylon. And he's feeling good about himself. He's feeling high and mighty. And so he gives the full tour to include the holy and sacred temple, sacred temple treasures, which obviously something God did not want. God sees what he did. He knows the heart of his king. He sees his haughtiness and his pride. And he sends Isaiah to give a judgment upon Hezekiah for acting in his pride and saying that the same people who came and got the deluxe tour of the valuable temple treasures will return at some point in the not-too-distant future and take those treasures back to Babylon along with your nation, what would be known as the Babylonian captivity. After giving this judgment in chapter 39, God realizes that this is going to be a terrible calamity and that this judgment didn't stand on its own. Israel had been up and down before the Lord, but this is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. But he realizes his people, when they go, will need something to take with them. And so he gives them Isaiah chapter 40. He gives them the hope which we're going to talk about here. Now, if you have not read Isaiah 40 before, it is one of the great big God chapters in the Bible. There are a few chapters in the Bible that focus on the greatness and the power and the authority of God, and Isaiah 40 is at the top of that list. Also, it's a personal favorite of mine. Having been introduced to it early in life, with blessed to have been raised in a church environment and, and shown the Bible and the many, many beauties therein. Isaiah 40 was one of the chapters that I was introduced to. And over the years, as I've faced significant difficulties of all kinds, whether I'm lost, struggling, filled with doubt, in settings where I have no one to go to, where there wasn't a church to attend or someone to listen to, where I was literally by myself, alone, with no one except God's word. I would turn to Isaiah 40. And God many times spoke to me and continues to speak to me through this chapter. And yes, back in the day, because of the impact of this chapter, I even had the classic Christian Eagle t-shirt about Isaiah 40. Some of you might have had a similar t-shirt as well. Maybe you still do. We need to see more of those worn around, I guess. So Isaiah 40 is understood to be God's gift to his people coming on the heels of the terrible judgment. Now, I would love to read it together, but it's a five-minute read. 
And so sadly, with our time constraints on the service, if you have not read Isaiah 40, even if you have, here's your assignment. Make it your devotional reading for the week. Every day this week when you wake up, read Isaiah 40. Get out a piece of paper, your journal, even a notepad, and just write down. Say, God, speak to me through, through this chapter. And just listen quietly for what the Holy Spirit wants to tell you. You will not be dis- disappointed any day of the week. Now, there's a number of things we need to talk about with Isaiah 40 before we jump into what it has to say to us. The first thing is, has to do with the format of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 has a number of verses that are questions, okay? It's the use of questions in the chapter. In a chapter full of really important information about God, Isaiah decides to ask the reader numerable questions, numerous questions throughout the chapter. Now, why would God do this? Well, we need to understand that questions are powerful and effective ways to communicate. Questions force the hearer or the audience to engage their minds more acutely and directly with the topic being discussed. You notice that when we preach, we'll stop and we'll ask you a question. Why are we doing that? Because we might be boring you and you might be ready to go to sleep and a question jerks you out of that. Oh, what's Jeremy saying? Right? We all do it. Isaiah does it in chapter 40. We see some of these questions because God's sovereignty can be a difficult topic to fully comprehend. In verse 12, Isaiah asks the question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The waters he's speaking about are the oceans, which are many miles deep and thousands of miles wide. And he's asking this about people in comparison to God, who has measured the oceans in his hand. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him, God, his counsel? Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? Who do you think God is like, he's asking. And verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. There is no comparison. These and several others are types of verses that you can see what the author is doing. They're rhetorical questions that can't really be answered except in the obvious yes or no. Because God is not like us, although we often forget that truth. Like a farmer tilling the ground in late winter, early spring before planting, Isaiah, the prophet, and God through him is tilling the minds and hearts of us, the viewer, the listener, his audience, so that we can receive the truth about the sovereignty of God that he is trying to give us. The questions are designed to help us understand God's sovereignty. Now, we talked about the difficulties. Let's highlight two of these difficulties with regard to God's sovereignty that will get in the way when we venture into Isaiah 40. The first is this, sin. Now, sin is a major problem in the world, not just because it's the, the presence of sin puts a, an un, uh, uncrossable gap between us and God that only Jesus Christ has been able to bridge and that only through him we can have communion with God. That's a big deal. But next to that is the impact that sin has on the human person. Sin has corrupted the human mind, the human heart, the world in which we live. In a world where God is sovereign, sin has corrupted us to think and believe that we are in charge, that we are the most important person in our existence, in our world. And every moment and every effort of our lives, apart from God's intervention, is, has us at the center and our preservation and our well-being as its focus. 
And that is a lie. That is corrupting. And that's why the sovereignty of God is hard for us to understand because we're corrupted in our ability to see it as God sees it. Secondly, the second obstacle with regard to God's sovereignty is this blessed country in which we live, the United States of America. If we lived in Britain in the 1100s where a king or queen, a monarch, had absolute power and we were born into a world where there was a king from the moment of our birth who we were subject to until the moment of our death, we would better understand sovereignty because that would have been the world in which we live, but not in the United States where we have a democracy and representative government and we are told in the first words of our declaration that we have inalienable rights. People ruled by a sovereign do not have rights. And so the very democracy, the world in which we live, makes understanding sovereignty hard because we think we're all sovereign. And so these two factors make it hard for you and I to understand sovereignty. So if you came in here hearing the title thinking, oh, this is the sovereignty of God, okay, I get this. No, we don't. We have to acknowledge that we struggle to receive this and we need God's grace and help for us to get it and to see it as he has communicated it. So... How then is God's sovereignty revealed to us in Isaiah chapter 40? It's in a number of ways, and we're going to talk about three of them. Surprise, surprise. All right. The first is through God's eternal word as it's talked about in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, verse 5, the author writes this. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We see right off the bat in verse 5, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has declared things. These are God's words. Then several verses later in verse 8, we read, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus repeats this almost verbatim in the New Testament in Matthew 24, verse 35, when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We can see in these verses the reverence for God's words, and it's the words eternality. It will stand forever. To think that the word of God will outlast the very universe in which we live is an awesome thought to meditate upon. The promises of God, the commands of God, the words of God enduring forever. Time and again, the Bible records things that come true later on. I lead a small group Bible study here at Rooftop on Wednesday nights where we're going through the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, which was written in 550 B.C. and is part of the Jewish Old Testament literature, he foretells through from God's direction with Babylon currently in power, who's going to conquer Babylon? The Persians. Oh, and then who's going to conquer Persians? The Greece, Greeks. And then another force will come and conquer the Greeks. We know them to be, today, the Romans. Called the shot centuries in advance, and it happened. Not only that, the Old Testament has over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah, Lord Jesus. And Jesus fulfills all of them. The word of God is enduring. As a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, God's word is the greatest source of assurance and confidence we can have about God. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are not regularly reading God's word, I love you, but you're in trouble. You may not feel it, you may not know it, but you're in a perilous place. God uses his words to teach us about his power and his sovereignty. 
God's word has been such an invaluable resource and asset for me in my own Christian life. There have been times, as I said, when I've had nothing, no one. All I've had are words in this book based on where I lived or was stationed or the situation I found myself in. And time and again, God showed up for me in the pages of this book. God's sovereignty is seen in his eternal word. Secondly, as we see in Isaiah 40, God is the creator. Now, I love the earth and the beauty of God's creation, whether it's looking at 40-foot waves up on the North Shore in Oahu, Hawaii. And by the way, I could watch those waves crash for hours and days on end. If you've ever seen it, it's amazing. Or it could be me swimming next to a whale shark in the channel between Madagascar and Mozambique. Literally a 50-foot fish within three feet of me. Mind-blowing. We Zilkies, we vacation at national parks instead of going to Branson or Disney. I've lived in Missouri 11 years. I've never been to Branson. But I've driven to Washington and Montana and California. This past year, a year ago, we went up to Glacier National Park in Montana and saw some incredible views and went on some amazing hikes to see the beautiful creation of God. Back in 2014, our family went out to Yosemite and we visited Half Dome, all right? And the picture you see is the sunset at Half Dome. Well, we heard about the sunset at Half Dome and we got to the park and I had limited time. I'm literally speeding through the park and if you've ever been to Yosemite, I'm racing in a 12-passenger van up the hill. My wife was so angry with me. I think she might have just closed her eyes and I said, Julie, I gotta get there, I'm sorry. Buckle up. We get to the top, only to have just missed it, and the sun went down, and we're heartbroken. And then I don't know why it does it this way. We thought we were done. I'm not joking. Then all of a sudden, 10 seconds later, the picture you see happened, and Half Dome lit up bright orange. And we were in awe, celebrating, joyful at what God had revealed. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the creator also beyond the earth. Two verses earlier in verse 26, Isaiah says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you seen the sky filled with stars from a place that is not obstructed by the light of the city? Maybe it's the desert. Maybe it's in the woods of the Ozark. Maybe it's out at sea. Maybe it's up on a a mountaintop of some sort. I don't know. But if you've had the blessing of seeing the sky with the full range of stars and you realize God has named every single one of them, it reveals the enormity of God, his immense creative power. Psalm 33, 6 tells us, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God did it through the spoken word. And while some people overlook the beauty of creation or acknowledge its beauty without acknowledging the creator of the creation, God tells us, he calls us out if we ignore him and the glory he is deserving of as creator. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Christians in Rome said this, For his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning people, everyone, are without excuse. God has created the world. He's made it beautiful. He's made it majestic. He's made it intricate. And he holds us accountable to knowing him and seeing him in it, even if we deny him. That's sovereignty. And sovereignty through his creation. Thirdly, God's sovereignty is seen because he exists above creation and is incomparable to creation. Verse 15 of Isaiah 40 says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Verse 17 says something similar. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And then again later in verse 22, Isaiah says this, It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And just so you know, he's being generous. Because a grasshopper is closer to who I am than I am to who God is. While we humans are valued and valuable as image bearers and how we are created, which God talks about in Genesis 1, we are created in the image of God to reflect his goodness in comparison to the uncreated God who created us, who is infinite and eternal. We truly are grasshoppers. We are loved, but we are low. We are a blob of clay spinning on a wheel. Isaiah says later in chapter 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are Father, and we are clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. I had a professor in seminary named Dr. Greer. He was an older, tall, imposing man with this baritone voice that felt like it shook the room and you could feel it in your chest when he would talk. But he was also brilliant. And he introduced me to a valuable truth concept that really helped me to better understand this idea of God's sovereignty. He said to the class, there are two types of beings in the universe, two classifications. And immediately I'm like, cool, cool, classifications. I like classifications. Tell me more. And I remember thinking, all right, here it comes. The first of those things are created things. And he began to tell us what was created. People, creatures, bacteria, stars, planets, everything that is. I'm like, okay. Well, that doesn't leave a lot for the second classification, but I'm, I'm ready to listen. Go ahead. And the second type, he said, are those things that are uncreated. And there's only one uncreated thing in existence. And that is God. And this is a very interesting comparison. It might not seem obvious because it often isn't. God is not created. You and me, we are created. The earth, the sun, the stars, every other living living creature created. Angels created. The devil created. But God was not. He has always been. Dr. Greer said then, thusly, and he used words like thusly, which is really cool, by the way, said thusly, for a created being to ever render judgment or oversight over God who is uncreated is beyond futile. Have you ever had the thought, I don't like what God is doing? I don't like that God did that. Or the temptation that I can't worship a God like that. Be very wary 
of harboring those thoughts beyond an instantaneous temptation. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What God is saying here is that is it not God's prerogative as the uncreated being to create a vessel for glory and salvation and yes, potentially to create another vessel for judgment? That's the question being discussed in Romans 9. And the very thought of that, the very idea of that makes some of us cringe. And the hair on the back of our neck stands up because that's not how we would do it. We're created. God is not. And sadly, when some of us don't receive the answer we want from God, what do we do? God, I'm not interested anymore. And we then presume to believe that God doesn't exist to justify our inability and unwillingness potentially to agree with him. I warn you, God welcomes our questions. He welcomes our wrestling, but to a point. Be very careful about taking that question or point too far. Because like many before you, you could find yourself on the outside of faith and in great peril. God's sovereignty is seen in his eternal word, is seen in his creation, and his being above or over creation. And now for the second part of that opening question, why is God's sovereignty so important? Well, God wants to reveal first and foremost his glory to the earth, to the universe, to all creation. Newsflash, it's not about us. It's about God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. This crazy trinity loves to magnify and glorify each other's greatness to each other and to the universe around. Our salvation is really great. We're not the center of God's affections. He's the center of his affections, and his glory is to be seen by all of creation. Us and whatever he's created beyond us. Isaiah 40, verse 5 says this, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Psalm 57, verse 5 says this, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Even Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was for God's glory. We think it was for our salvation. It accomplished that. It was ultimately for God's glory. Paul tells us this in his letter to the church at Philippi, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says this, So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It all happened for his glory. So that's the first reason why his sovereignty is important. And the second then is where we get brought in. The second reason is this, and it's our main idea for today. The sovereignty of God exists to give you and me strength for today. To give us strength for today. God always cares about his people, even when they're heading into calamity, even when they're heading into captivity. In the greatest of struggles, he wants us to know that he is there for us. He may not change our circumstances. He may not remove the calamity. But he will always be with us in the middle of it, even unto death, if that's where he's taking us. And he doesn't promise escape from death. He says, be faithful unto death. And guess what, Jeremy? I got something so much better for eternity just on the other side. In Isaiah 40, Verse 29, we get this from the prophet. 
He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so I have a question. Are any of you feeling weary this morning? Has 2020 taken a toll on you in one or in any number of ways? I know I am. And I'm not one to admit weariness or fatigue. You can just ask my family. I probably should more than I do. But these past nine months have been some of the hardest months of my life. Not physically. I've suffered physically with various illnesses and challenges in my life of my job or what I was doing. But emotionally, mentally, especially as a pastor, I'm tired. This COVID world with sickness all around, saturated in fear, and all the division and hostility that has come with it, especially here within the walls of the church, it makes me so very sad and tired. And I feel weary. Put your opinions aside. Whatever bunker you've stepped into, whether the issue is politics or COVID or race relations or masks, step out of your bunker and I ask you this question. Do you feel weary as well? And how is that impacting you in ways you don't even know? At the end of Isaiah 40, we are given one of the great verses of the Bible, one of my favorite verses. Isaiah 40, 31, many of you know it. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let me say it again. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. For those of us who are weary, who are tired, who are worn out, God gives us Isaiah 40, a view of his sovereignty and power over the earth, the universe, and our individual lives therein, as insignificant as they actually are. And he gives us the promise of strength, supernatural strength to face whatever his will before us might be today. He will give you strength for today from Isaiah 40. You know what he won't give you today? Strength for tomorrow. You want strength for tomorrow? Pick up your word tomorrow and read it. Get your daily bread tomorrow. He never gives bread for the next day. He only gives bread for today. But he promises his strength today. Ultimately, the sovereignty of God strengthens his people. And that's the purpose that he wants it to have for us. As his glory radiates forth from it, he wants you and me to be strengthened. And this morning, that's my prayer. That is my prayer for you That's my prayer for me as his children in light of everything we've read and we've talked about already. I pray that you will receive the strength he has for you today. Father God, we do, we just humbly come before you right now and we cry out as your children. Some of us Somewhat weary, some of us very tired and very weary, if we are honest. And we need you. We need your strength. We need your help. 
We need you to come in where our physical, our human frailties have reached their limit, and we need your supernatural strength that comes through the promise of your word, that comes through the glory of your creative self, and comes through the reality that you are an uncreated God to whom there is no comparison, and you are also our Father. And I pray right now that each heart is encouraged, that our legs are strengthened for the walk or for the run that you have before us. We thank you for this. Ask this in Jesus' name.